The Second World War has probably inspired more films, plays, novels and documentaries than any other six-year period in history. But there's no substitute for the accounts of the people who were there. Now, with the last participants in their 90s and even older, those precious first-hand accounts are coming to an end. Simon Morris goes to probably one of the last. It's called Lancaster. Morale was very low indeed because the losses were building up. We lost over 40 aircraft in one night. I was so devastated. I wasn't able to say goodbye, darling. Empty chairs at empty tables. That's where John used to sit. That's where Harry used to sit. I'm sorry to see them go. The hard facts are we had a job to do. And we had to get on with it. A couple of years ago, the documentary Spitfire told the story of the fighter planes and their pilots who won the Battle of Britain and inspired the nation to help win the Second World War. But it was later British planes, the Lancaster bombers, that did much of the heavy lifting. And their story is finally told in Lancaster. Now, it's probably the last eyewitness account to be made about the war. Like Spitfire, it was co-directed by David Fairhead and Anthony Palmer. And Anthony Palmer joins me now on the phone from the UK. Hi, Anthony, and congratulations on a really wonderful film. Thank you very much. I'm really glad um, you, you enjoyed it. So how does two directors work, you and David? Uh, well, I'm glad to say there's very little arguing. Uh, David and I kind of bring two different qualities. Uh, we are both sort of directors and editors as well. Mm. But David has a really good and acute uh, detailed knowledge of history. I uh, am really fascinated by people and characters. And for me, as people will know, having watched the film, it's as much about the people, if not more, than it is about the aircraft. That's how it works, really. We bring two very complementary but very different skill sets. And, uh, and I have to say, it's, it's been really worthwhile doing it that way. So I'm assuming that you were involved in a lot of the uh, interviews. How old were the people you were talking to for the film? Well, it's a, it's a good question, that, because um, this was a slightly alarming thing, that after we finished Spitfire and we decided that we wanted to do the Lancaster film, I remember sitting down and just working out by going on the internet the age of some of these Lancaster crews. And I was quite shocked because I thought, we've really got to move quickly. Mm. Because, you know, their average age then, and we're talking three years ago, was about 96, approaching 97. Uh, and this was just pre-COVID. So 2018, 2019, we thought, right. Uh, and we had a help uh, with a guy um, called Steve Darlow, who is very well known by a lot of the um, UK veterans and has done a lot of work with, about Bomber Command. And Steve was fantastic because he managed to get a lot of these veterans on board, you know, because clearly, you know, you've got to be very uh, respectful of these guys mm. when you go and interview them. But we realised that we've just got to get moving. So we did about 38 interviews over the course of about... 18 months to two years and and then suddenly covid arrived and mm. but david and i were lucky in the sense that we'd done all but one interview so david went and did one interview during covid and had to do the interview outside in the garden while the the lovely veterans sat through french windows as mm -hmm. it were and uh, we we were very lucky but you know these guys it's extraordinary that at the age of 96, they are able to so eloquently recount those quite horrific 
memories of what they had to endure in those dark days. What strikes you is how lively and, in a sense, ageless they are. And their memories of those years are astonishingly vivid. They are. And, you know, I, I, I can't remember, you know, two weeks ago um, <laughs> what I was up to. These guys uh, have a very vivid memory. Now, of course, we know that the ops that they went on, you know, these were very difficult times. And so they are permanently etched into their minds. Mm. But what's really intriguing about this story is that after the war, because in a sense they were slightly shunned by the public for what they'd done, mm. uh, they decided not to talk about it. And as one of our veterans says, that once he went to a reunion and in the car on the way back, his wife said to him, uh, you've never mentioned any of that. And he said, oh, I, could, I couldn't talk about it. I couldn't talk about it because if I did, I was treated as if I was a murderer. Mm. And so for a lot of these guys after the war, they just shut down and went on to, as um, Ron Mayhill, who, who's a New Zealander from uh, 75 Squadron, he, I think he, he went off and did another job and that was it. It went quiet. So to bring back some of these memories was difficult because one guy, particularly uh, uh, Peter Kelsey, who was one of the first interviews we did, he sat down and he said to us, I've not talked about this. I have not talked about this for all oh, 30, 40 years or more, you know. Mm. And during the interview, he kept saying to us, I just can't believe how much I'm remembering. And the day after, David called him and said, you know, were you all right? And he said, I I'm afraid I didn't sleep a wink last night because it's all just come back. And there is that sense sometimes that you are stirring memories. But most of the veterans will say, well, you know, often they will come back to us in the middle of the night, these thoughts. And as our film does end with a very poignant piece from one of our veterans who says, you know, when I put my head on the pillow tonight, I will see flat bursting around me, but it doesn't bother me. But that's the way things are. I thought he was very moving, as you say. You touched on this a little bit too, Anthony, when you were talking about the fact that they were sort of shunned at the end. I mean, the fact is that when people think of the Spitfires, it feels kind of noble. It feels almost like Knights of the Round Table. It feels like jousting with other equal-minded people. But bombers is different. You're bombing civilians. You are, but, you know, you must remember that when these guys went to their briefing rooms in their hundreds, mm. they were told about legitimate targets. You know, they weren't told, right, you're going to take out all these civilians. And I don't think anybody, any of them, could have gone forward with their dedication to do the job. And that's what Churchill demanded of them, you know, get the job done. I don't think any of them could have done that if they'd known that and if it had crossed their minds. I mean, people always say this, that we mustn't forget that at the beginning of the war, we were bombed very badly by the Germans sure. in Coventry, Liverpool, London in the Blitz. And this was the only way that we could take the war back to Germany. And you're right, a Spitfire, single-seater um, fighter aircraft is very different. Um, and the guys that flew Spitfires were treated as heroes. The guys that came back from their missions to Berlin, Hamburg, all over Germany, I'm afraid after the war, they certainly had people turn their backs on them. And it is probably one of the more surprising things in the film was that when we started interviewing the veterans, one of the questions, uh, and we asked all our veterans this, which came towards the end of the interview, was, what do you feel about the politicians and Churchill? And all of them said, we were very disappointed of how we were treated. Mm. 
And it's that terrible problem of Churchill wanting to get back into politics at the end of the war and deciding that it was just too much for him to accept that he'd ordered Dresden to happen. He wanted it to happen. And it was too controversial. So he decided to almost let them down. And I think as the film uh, allows the veterans to say, they felt they felt really quite angry about that. That was the surprising thing for me, because in Spitfire, Churchill was seen as the hero. And in this film, particularly, I think he doesn't come out of it too well. But when it started, that wasn't quite the situation. I mean, the timeline to me was the most fascinating thing. The order of events seemed to be the Blitz, this is the Germans bombing England, then the Battle of Britain, and then after that they decided that they were going to have to take the war to Germany, which meant bomber command. But they didn't have any bombers, not or not ones that would do the job, and they didn't have any crews, so there was a big catch-up that they had to do at that stage, wasn't there? Yeah, and it's extraordinary. The development of the aircraft in a sort of rather British way was by accident. <laughs> That's another surprising thing. You know, we were desperate for something that really could change the the course of the war. And unfortunately, the bombers that we had at the time were just not up to it. They didn't have the range. And so when it was tasked with um, uh, Roy Chadwick to come up with the design, his first design, which was the Manchester, was unfortunately flawed by its terrible engines, which meant that it kept crashing. But rather than scrapping the whole thing, he Mm. persisted and managed to get the Lancaster off the ground by effectively swapping those engines, Rolls-Royce engines, for the same engine that powered the Spitfire, the Merlin. And with that and some design modifications came an aircraft that would go on to change the course of the war. But you also needed crews. And I love the uh, the interview with some of the guys that you talked to. They had these crash courses on how to do it. And there was one guy who said, I took the course on gunnery because it only took six weeks and I didn't want to miss out on the war. And I thought, you were 18 years old when that happened. That's such an 18-year-old attitude. It is. And, you know, that, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's very easy when you watch the film to look at these lovely guys in their 90s. You've got to remember that they were, even 17, they were desperately keen, you know, Mm. but 18 years old. And some of the crews, you know, the average age was always bumped up by maybe the pilot being a bit older, but they were very, very young Mm. and enthusiastic. But I also think what, what was lovely is I had no idea that I thought once they'd done their training, they would all be sat down and said, right, you'll go with so and so and so and so. Mm. But the idea um, of putting them all into a hangar and just saying, right, guys, sort yourselves out. You've got to form crews. And as some of them said, it was like something out of Monty Python. I mean, it was something (laughs) quite strange. And yet it worked brilliantly. They all talk about you shuffling around and you say, oh, you know, have you got a bomb aimer? Oh, no. OK, well, and you, you looked at the guy, uh, as Peter Kelsey said, you know, you thought, hmm, am I going to be safe with this guy? You know, mm. so it's extraordinary. They, they basically had huge faith. And of course, once they'd formed into their crew of seven, they all said it was the best crew. Bon Mayhill, who I mentioned from 75 Squadron New Zealand, said right. uh, we all thought we were the best crew. You spoke to a very wide range of people. I was less surprised to see that there were some women there because I'd seen Spitfire and I realised that women were involved in the ferry service. But I loved uh, one of the women who said we were really proud to do it. She was a plotter, which is one of Churchill's girls. And that's what they referred to themselves as. I just thought that was a wonderful line. We definitely struggled with Lancaster. Unfortunately, by the time we started filming, there were fewer WAFs alive 
it was just too late to get a group of them. But we did we did get some fantastic stories in there. Oh. And and as you write, you know, that, that sort of urge, she wanted to be, you know, and that's how Churchill was sort of held as a hero at that yeah. point of the war, because, you know, she wanted to be one of Churchill's girls. And so, I mean, there were a lot of missions, and but the two ones that leapt out, one was um, the famous Dam Busters one, which has always been described as uh, the first runs on the board for England, really. They'd had so many defeats up until then, and then suddenly the Dam Busters event turned up, and you covered that very well by using lots from the original film. You, you know, you're right about that. It's fascinating that when you talk to the veterans about that, they all say it was a fantastic morale boost for the country we really were in a dire dire straits and what's again extraordinary is how Barnes Wallace comes up with what people would have said at the time it sounds absolutely bonkers idea but again through that sort of perseverance and ingenuity comes up with something that really did do something now of course the veterans would say well it wasn't an enormous success but what it did do uh, in the words of uh, you know Johnny Johnson, who's the last surviving dam buster we have, mm. who said that it did show Germany just what we were capable of. So it was seen as a, a, a success, but more of a success was how it boosted the morale of not just the country, but of all those air crews who day in, day out were having to go on these operations. But the sad thing is how many were lost. As Johnny Johnson said, you know, on our way back, we did think, my God, was, was it worth it? But mm. he does say, yes, it was. These guys, you get the idea that it's all coming out now, finally, in their 90s. It's all coming out now. But I thought that the most interesting thing about it was how dry-eyed they were. The way that they were talking about the empty chairs. They wouldn't allow themselves to wallow because they had to go out again the next day. Yes, and, and you are right to quote the words of one of our veterans in what, one of the scenes of the film that I, 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 I find very, very moving mm. is that when ops were stood down, they would organise a station dance. And it's magical hearing them describe just what a relief this was just to be, you know, with a woman and dance. But also, mm. as one guy said, you didn't know whether you, you'd see the guy that you were drinking with the next day. Uh, and also, what, what was the point of going into the corner and crying? We had to get on with this. So, you know, they had to deal with it day after day after day and moments of relief like the dancing and just sharing a drink and being with uh, their friends and colleagues uh, meant so much to them. But they knew that the next day they might not be coming back. They were an extraordinary bunch of people and they are an extraordinary bunch of people in your film. They were talking about um, the many trips to the Ruhr Valley, which was one of the most important places to bomb. It was heavily defended and they used to refer to it as Happy Valley. I, I couldn't believe, believe that. You know, it's just extraordinary, Happy Valley. And that really must have been absolutely terrifying. I mean, the mm. Ruhr, as you quite rightly say, was incredibly well defended. But it was a very, very important target. You know, the amount of German industry in that small uh, area was enormous. Every time they were told they were going back there, you can imagine that the sort of groans and the sighs of thinking, gosh, we've got to go back there again and risk what they did. But again, that was actually a very successful campaign in the sense of trying to stop the German industry from continuing. It was really important that. I don't really want to talk much more about it, Anthony. I want people to go out and see it. It's such a brilliant film. But I loved the ending. With the Spitfires, they had instant recognition. Never have so many owed so much to so few, all that stuff. 
With the bombers, it was different. The bombers, as you said at the start of this, were essentially snubbed and let down until the very, very end when I'm sure most of them were dead, but there were enough around to see something nice happen right at the end. It's such an upbeat ending, I thought. I'm glad you said that. I mean, we thought long and hard about the the ending of, of these films. They sometimes provide you with a sort of natural ending. And for us, it was this notion that the veterans felt shunned. And, and Ron Mayhill said uh, it wasn't until the Bomber Command Memorial was built in 2012 mm. that the public had a better understanding of what they'd all been through. And that was a, a game changer because it did then throw the spotlight onto these guys and treat them very differently. And I think that was really too late in coming, my own view, um, but well, well deserved. I mentioned at the start of this, Anthony, that this was probably going to be the last eyewitness account of World War Two. I mean, it's been an amazing event, six years, that has given us so many movies, so many TV programmes, so many books. I, I feel that when we were sat with the veterans, the thing that's very humbling is being with them for just two hours or an hour and a half. It's very emotional. Now you, mm. you said that, you know, they're very restrained, but the way they express themselves is very difficult for David and I not to have a tear at mm. often these interviews. Uh, and the thing that really is sad is that when you're talking to them, you do realize this is the, probably the last time they'll tell their story. And sadly, you know, since we filmed the 38, we've lost uh, a large number uh, and it will be the last time they tell the story but as one veteran said you know which is a great compliment to David Knight he said it's beautifully presented as our story and mm. and I'm glad we've got it out there it's really important that people know having done as I say the last two eyewitness World War Two stories are you going to now change gear completely for your next project well, you know, that's up for debate. But actually, at the moment, David is working on what probably will be the third film, which is going to be about the mosquito. Um, but again, it's really interesting that having done two, of course, we've been presented with quite a few offers from people saying, oh, well, why don't you do this or why don't you do that? And that's always the difficulty. Uh, it is very difficult. But I think Mosquito will be the third film uh, in there. And then there's potentially another one after that, which might be more contemporary. It's a rich source for, of content. And, um, you know, it's been a wonderful privilege, particularly, as I say, meeting those veterans who... Uh, you'll never meet a generation like them. I think your best find was the German woman. Her name's Ursula, I think. She was the one person who was in Germany, if you like, as a victim or a, a recipient of the bombs. And at the end of it, she said, what else could they do? That was the job. The job was to beat Hitler. The job was to beat Hitler, but, you know, it was the only way we could fight back. And, you know, people talk about it. It wasn't a, an act of complete aggression. We had to do something to stop a tyrant. Yeah. And Ursula, who was a wonderful lady, she said, yes, you know, look, lots of German civilians died. Lots died on your side as well. But mm. what else could you do? What else could you do? And finding Ursula was, again, one of those wonderful, magical things in film. I sat next to somebody at a Spitfire screening and talked about Lancaster. And she said, oh, my my mum-in-law was from Germany. In fact, she, she was at school in Dresden. She's still alive and she's living in Cambridge. 
And I got on the phone immediately to the next day and said, look, could I meet her? And she said, look, she's a little bit reserved. Could you come to the pub and meet her for lunch? So I went to the pub with Ursula uh, and her daughter-in-law and um, chatted to Ursula. And I realised she was fantastic. And then very tentatively at the end of the thing, lunch, I said, oh, look, Ursula, would, you know, would you mind if you could do an interview? And she said, well, we could do it now. And thank heaven I had all my film equipment in the back of the car. Oh, my God. Because I know that if I'd said to Ursula, well, let's do it in two weeks. I don't know. She may have changed her mind. or right. But we went back straight away uh, and filmed that interview. And, and, of course, what's frustrating for me, it was just me. It's often very helpful to have someone else with you. But um, it was extraordinary. And, again, it was a sort of moment of, of luck. And that's what often is wonderful about filmmaking. These things do present themselves. Um, but she, yeah, she said some amazing things and uh, we're very grateful to all the veterans that, that uh, shared their stories. Anthony Palmer, one of the two directors of the documentary Lancaster, talking with Simon Morris. The movie is released here on September the 1st 